100 years ago, an extraordinary man passed away in the Holy Land at the age of 77. He had spent more than half a century as a prisoner and an exile. But on his release, and despite his advanced age, his health impaired by decades of imprisonment, he set off on a journey to spread a message of peace, unity, and hope to the world. His name was Abdul Baha. I could see the radiance of this man who was to make such an impression on all our lives. You see such power latent within that person. I never in all my life heard a voice like that. It was vibrant and ringing. I'm Rain Wilson. And I'm Parisa Fitzhenley. And in this series of podcasts, we'll be finding out about this unique figure in human history, celebrating his life and legacy and the enduring influence he has had on people around the world ever since. When he left the house, the sun disappeared, but that kind of sunshine never leaves one's heart. Through his public talks, his writings, his love and service to all who crossed his path, Abdu'l-Bahá offered a pattern of right living to all people for all time. He was, in every sense of the word, an ambassador to humanity. The year is 1908. The Young Turks' Revolution results in the release of all political and religious prisoners of the Ottoman Empire. Abdu'l-Bahá is now free for the first time since he was eight years old. Now in his seventh decade, he immediately sets about planning to personally take Baha'u'llah's teachings to other parts of the world, particularly North America. Historian Mujan Momin. He had wanted to travel, and when American Baha'is started to come to Acre, he saw for himself firsthand the potential in the American Baha'i community to advance the Baha'i faith. And so he saw the need to go to America himself in order to make it clear to the American Baha'is the Baha'i teachings, the global vision of the Baha'is, all these things he could impart much more effectively if he traveled to America. He was obviously trying to do that with the American Baha'is who came to Acre, but they were just a handful compared to the thousands of Americans who had become close to the Baha'i faith in America itself. So it would be much more effective if he went there and did that. And also he had invitations from institutions and groups in America to come and speak to them on subjects such as peace. He obviously wanted to respond to that as well. Two years after his release, Abdu'l-Bahá leaves the Holy Land for the first time in 42 years, bound for Egypt. But his poor health does not yet allow an extended journey to Europe. Instead, he remains near Alexandria for a full year. His presence there arouses intense curiosity among prominent Egyptians, as well as journalists, who write, Whosoever associates with him, find him a man who has information upon all subjects of human interest. His words are eloquent and attracts the hearts and enkindles the souls. His teachings and conversation revolve around the center of the greatest of the world's problems, to remove entirely religious 
racial, patriotic prejudices and lays a foundation of a brotherhood and unity that will last throughout the ages and eternity. No one has visited him without leaving him impressed by his presence, embracing his qualities and wondering at his magnanimity and his astonishing mind. 11 August 1911. Abdu'l-Bahá leaves Egypt bound for Marseille in France. He spends a fortnight resting at tanan le ban on the shore of Lake Leyman and visits Geneva in Switzerland. A number of his European and American friends are, for the first time, able to gather about him, away from the fetid atmosphere and dangers of the prison city of Akka, as well as the machinations of some envious family members that have turned against him. If only I could picture to you Abdu'l-Bahá in the West. Abdu'l-Bahá with the power of his peace in the restless West. Abdu'l-Bahá in the complex West with the power of his simplicity. Abdu'l-Bahá with his noble and illumined beauty in the artificial and skeptical West. So strongly defined in his completeness against our underdevelopment. And that illumined beauty the dignity not of this world, that majesty of spirit that marks him a king among men, never went unheeded. For wherever he passed, eyes turned to follow, and the crowds, with involuntary reverence, stood back. On the 10th of September, 1911, Abdu'l-Bahá gives a public address for the first time in his life. More than 2,000 people gather at London's City Temple to hear him say, The gift of God to this enlightened age is the knowledge of the oneness of mankind and of fundamental oneness of religion. War shall cease between nations, and by the aid of God the most great peace shall come. The world will be seen as a new world, and all men will live as brothers. There is one God, mankind is one, the foundations of religion are one. Abdu'l-Bahá's month-long stay in England is filled with ceaseless activity and countless conversations, providing answers to people's questions and insights into many contemporary issues. His two visits to London, 1911 and 1913, remain a source of inspiration for people in London today, like Leslie Taherzadeh Omara. Having been living in the Holy Land for a time, spending a lot of time in the holy places and places where Abdu'l-Bahá was, and it was just so natural there to think, yes, Abdu'l-Bahá walked these streets. There are places in Akka where you know it's still the same cobblestones that were there. His feet touched these stones. And then in London, to think he was actually here in London. <laughs> And I still find myself doing that. And then I try to imagine what he must have looked like to the people around and how that must have been so striking to see him draw up at the door of Lady Blomfield's apartment building and just sweep up the stairs in his robes. How that must have struck people at that time. 
and so wonderful for us. And I find it so inspiring to think that Abdu Baha came here and visited so many places in London, well over 30 places that he actually went and gave addresses and nurtured people and loved people and met people and is very, very inspiring. And I think gives me heart to do what I can do in some small way to emulate his life of service. The activities of Abdu'l-Bahá in London, followed by Paris, France, set a pattern that he will follow throughout all his travels for the next two years. Writer and artist Anne Perry. And it was the first time he spoke about the principles of Baha'u'llah, and he began articulating these. And most of the talks he gave in Paris were to small groups. He always would give people what they needed to hear, and often he knew people's thoughts. He could intuitively discern what people needed or answer their questions. After wintering again in Egypt, Abdu'l-Bahá gathers his strength to sail to the United States of America, arriving in New York on the 11th of April, 1912. For the next 239 days, talks are given to packed auditoriums, private audiences are granted, and Abdu'l-Bahá's personality and presentations are extensively reported in newspapers from coast to coast. He is received enthusiastically by every stratum of society. Michael Day is a journalist from Australia. He gave these talks night after night without any notes. So one night he would give a talk and the next night he would give a talk, he'd give a talk during the day. And when you look at them now from these days, they're absolutely logical they're on highly complex issues and topics. It's just unbelievable that somebody could deliver so many talks on different topics tuned to different audiences. And it's so relevant to today. It's as if he could deliver talks that would be relevant for all time. Abdu'l-Bahá is not the first spiritually enlightened teacher from the East to travel to America, but there is a difference to his mission. Robert Stockman is the author of Abdu'l-Bahá in America. Vivekananda and the other Eastern Buddhist and Hindu teachers who came to the United States, mostly in the 1890s and sometimes the first decade of the 20th century, they were coming for several reasons. One was certainly to proclaim the validity of their religions to a country that was basically saying Christianity is a superior faith and all the other religions aren't even legitimate religions. They're just simply human efforts to understand the divine that are a preparation for Christ. And so a lot of these Eastern teachers were there really to defend their faiths and to respond to these attacks against their faiths. And they were often quite polemical. They would often attack modern Christianity as causing colonialism, causing imperialism, and then all of the ills of colonialism and imperialism, like bringing liquor to India, for example, hooking people on alcohol, was something that Vivekananda in particular criticized the West about. And so he was intentionally puncturing balloons. That was one of the main reasons they came. Another reason they came was that they had their own efforts going on in their home countries and they needed to raise money for them. And so they were coming to some extent to see if they couldn't find human resources and financial resources. So Al-Baha comes and as the newspaper journalist Kate Carew noted, he didn't come to ask for money. He came to give away money because he went to the Bowery mission where there were all these poor men being fed in the soup kitchen. And he actually gave all of them money so that they could get themselves a bed for the night. And of course, Abu'l-Bahá never criticized Christianity. He never criticized America. He emphasized, you know, you've made great material progress. Now you must also make great spiritual progress. 
you want to bring civilized ideas to the world, think about the spiritual changes that the world needs. So it was a very different kind of message from the message of Vivekananda and these other Eastern teachers. And the other thing that's also quite striking is that Al-Baha consistently emphasized the oneness of humanity. And many of the white intellectuals who were listening to him, the educated people who would go to his talks, they would say, well, yes, of course, we believe this too. And one time, Abdu'l-Bahá was introduced at a gathering in Boston, and the host who introduced him said, you know, the thing that's great about Abdu'l-Bahá is he teaches the same things we teach. Isn't it amazing that someone from Iran would teach the same things we teach? Well, none of them were going to try and encourage their children to marry the black washerwoman or the seamstress who was taking care of a lot of the domestic tasks around their house. They all knew black people mostly as servants, and they believed in the so-called brotherhood of man, but it wasn't necessarily an equal brotherhood either. Abdu'l-Bahá comes to America, and he's teaching the oneness of humanity. And to these white audiences, he's very polite, but then to the Baha'is, he's emphasizing interracial marriage. Everyone recognized that he was very wise, he was very just, compassionate, loving. Historian Catherine Jewett Hoganson. And... People had also many mystical experiences. He usually knew what they were thinking. They didn't have to even ask him questions. He would answer anyway. So that always amazed people. It also amazed particularly the Westerners that he knew so much. Here is a man who had no real formal education other than what tutors his family provided when he was a young child and then was a prisoner from the time he was about 10 years old. His family had lost everything. They were in exile. He had no opportunity for formal schooling. And then he's living in a backwater, Aka Israel. You couldn't just go down to the corner drugstore and buy a New York Times. And yet he knew what was going on in the world and he understood it at a deep level. And that always flabbergasted the people he met in the West. But the biggest thing was he had always the ability to touch hearts even people who were not adherent to the Baha'i faith. You hear this a lot about family members, husbands, for example, in particular, because often it was the women of the family who were very involved, as they usually are in churches and other religious groups. And even if the husband was hostile, once they met the master, their hearts changed. They liked him. So with everyone he met, he had an ability to understand where they were and meet them at that level. Abdu'l-Bahá's manner melts even the most hard-nosed of journalists. Kate Carew is a newspaper columnist and caricaturist. No prominent personality of the day escapes her sharp tongue and sarcasm, but even she finds herself won over by Abdu'l-Bahá's generosity of spirit, as scholar Stephen Phelps explains. Kate Carew, who I think hands down has the very best interview with Abdu'l-Bahá, one of the things she got that I haven't seen others get is that what distinguished Abdu'l-Bahá was that he was entirely in a mode of giving. There was no taking. Kate Carew noticed that in the incident in the Bowery Mission where he's giving out the quarters to the poor people. That made a profound impression on her and on others. Anne and Tim Perry captured the change that happened in Kate Carew and her responsibility as a journalist in their film about Abdu'l-Bahá's travels titled Luminous Journey. 
She always made fun of celebrities and politicians and everybody. Mm -hmm. So she was happy to go along with this white bearded man in the turban and robe and see what he was up to, gathering fodder for another scorching article. And mm -hmm. he admonished her because I think on the ride over, he would do this thing. It's almost like he could read your thoughts. And he said, you know, the press have a very important role to the public. Their job is to convey truthfully what is happening. He asked her to be kind. Just then, the master said to me in a gentle but firm voice, Remember, you press people are the servants of the public. You interpret our words and acts to them. With you is a great responsibility. Please remember and please treat us seriously. And not only does Abdu'l-Baha seem to be able to understand exactly what is going on in the hearts and minds of those who meet him, but they also understood him without speaking a word of the Persian language. And Perry. And there was another story that I loved about an illiterate man in San Francisco who walked to see Abdu'l-Baha in a church. And Abdu'l-Baha was on the stage speaking in Persian, mostly, and then a translator would interpret for him. And the man got very agitated, and he said, why is that man interrupting Abdu'l-Baha? And others around him said, shh, he's translating. And it happened again. And he said, could you tell that man to stop interrupting Abdu'l-Baha? And they said, no, we need to hear the translation. He said, but anyone could understand what he's saying. Whether you are a sophisticated society gossip columnist or down at heel, Abdu'l-Baha makes no judgment, but sees only your potential. Educator Nwandi Lassen. As an old man, he does not speak the language of the people of the West. He does not have the clothing that they have. He does not take any diversity courses. He brings with him, though, a heart of love and the knowledge that mankind is one. And so he moves freely among populations without distinction and enables each of those populations to advance very far. Artist and writer, Hooper Dunbar. The people that came to meet Abdu'l-Baha, they said, you saw his eyes and you saw that he saw everything about you. At one glance, you knew he knew every shortcoming. People would collapse, you know, they'd weep. And then they'd gather their strength and they'd look up again and the master would look at them still with this benign look. It didn't matter what they had done. Such a mercy and kindness and forgiveness and even respect that you're a creation. You are a creation of God. He shows to us what man can become. One such visitor to Abdu'l-Baha was the Unitarian minister Howard Colby Ives. I was absolutely alone with Abdu'l-Baha. He spoke and in my own tongue. Softly came the assurance that I was his very dear son. What earthly paternal relationship could equal this? My throat swelled, my eyes filled. We sat in the two chairs by the window, knee to knee, eye to eye. At last, he looked right into me. It was as if his very being opened to receive me. With that, the heart within me melted and the tears flowed. He wiped the tears from my face, admonishing me not to cry, that one must always be happy. And he laughed, such a ringing, boyish laugh. Then Abdu'l-Baha placed his hand upon my breast, saying that it was the heart that speaks. Suddenly, he leaped from his chair with another laugh, as though consumed with a heavenly joy. 
Turning, he took me under the elbows and lifted me to my feet and swept me into his arms. Such a hug. He kissed me on both cheeks, laid his arm across my shoulders, and led me to the door. That is all. But life has never been quite the same since. Among those most touched by Abdul Baha's presence in their midst are children, to whom he shows a special measure of attention and love. For those who remembered him and lived late into the 20th century, meeting Abdul Baha was a memory that shaped the rest of their lives. His voice, I think, made more impression on me than any other one thing about being with him. It was a most beautiful, musical voice, strong and full with rich overtones. And I remember thinking on that last evening, if I could just carry the feeling, the memory of that voice in my mind for the rest of my life, I would be happy. When it was my turn, there was a group there, and he motioned me forward, put his arm around me, kissed me on the forehead. When he entered, it was a very impressive sight. As small as I was, I could see the radiance or the dignity of this man who was to make such an impression on all our lives. I had received some of the spirit that he always gave forth. It's something that I would treasure forever. Abdu'l-Bahá said constantly, you must be happy, be happy, please be happy. And it was to my mother that he used this word, please be happy. And she felt almost as if it were a sin if she were not happy after that. He truly loved and truly helped bring out in each person their very best and help them to lead a better life. I don't know what came over me, but I had a feeling like a power pulling me towards Abdul Baha. And when he came and walked in the front door, I realized that here was the sunshine. I had felt it long before he came to the house. Abdu'l-Bahá just didn't touch our lives. He changed them completely. On his return to Paris, Abdu'l-Bahá has fewer public engagements, but a number of émigrés from Iran and the Ottoman Empire who reside in the city seek him out. When Abdu'l-Bahá feels strong and well enough, he sets off to Stuttgart in Germany and also makes trips to Vienna and Budapest. As with every other place he has been, his presence in that city attracts the press. Abdu'l-Bahá is the child of the modern age, and this is manifest in his teachings, among other things. While voicing the sacred words of God, he often refers to modern ideals as well. In addition to eternal love and happiness, he wholeheartedly is a propagandist of the cause of world peace, and, with more enthusiasm than even the suffragettes, he demands the right for women to vote and equality between men and women. The novel and unselfish work of this Persian sage is worthy of respect and deserves the great sympathy by which he has been welcomed on his world tour. Throughout his three years of traveling, Abdu'l-Bahá's message is that the long-promised age for the unification of humanity has arrived. He speaks of the need to create the social conditions and the international political instruments necessary to establish peace. And he gives a special mission to the United States of America to lead the way. Filmmaker Tim Perry. 
this is a part of American history that hasn't been told yet. I think in the future it will be in the history books and taught in schools. So for me, the favorite stories and the favorite things that I've learned is the vision that he had for America. He spoke often of what America is and he gave blessings to this country. He revealed a prayer in Chicago. He says, oh God, let this American democracy become glorious in spiritual degrees, even as it has aspired to material degrees, and render this just government victorious. Confirm this revered nation to appraise the standard of the oneness of humanity, to promulgate the most great peace, to become thereby most glorious and praiseworthy among the nations of the world. And again, like on his last night in America, he spoke to the Theosophical Society and he said, I have received the greatest kindness from the American people. I look upon them as a noble nation, capable of every perfection. I pray that you may attain the highest station of humanity. I shall never forget you. You shall always live in my thought. These days our nation goes through ups and downs. But to have this vision that he had for our country, I thought that was really magical and really important and it gives me hope and I think that the future belongs to those who give people hope. Within two years of Abdu'l-Bahá's return to the Holy Land, the nations of the world will be engulfed in the bloodiest conflict it has ever experienced. But Abdu'l-Bahá, during his travels, has set in motion a conversation on the prerequisites for peace that require the active commitment of every human being. One of them, the elimination of racial prejudice, will be explored in our next podcast.